was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, Series 3, Episode Number 9. It's been a while, so it's nice to have you here again. We hope the wait for an episode hasn't been as torturous as the gap between License to Kill and Goldeneye. Uh, I, for one, have been as discombobulated as Roger Moore stepping off a centrifuge in the time we've been away, so it's good to be back on familiar ground. Before we begin, the usual reminder that you can find all of our episodes spanning three series on all good podcast platforms, so do check them out if you haven't already. And if you've been enjoying the show, please do share us with other Bond-loving friends and family, much like Quarrel in Dr. No. We like people who's friends with people, and we welcome all feedback as well, so do consider leaving us a short review. Five stars, never expected, but always appreciated. You can also go a step further if you'd like to send us a message or question, then you can visit any of our social media pages. Just search our name on Facebook and Instagram, or our Twitter handle is more cubby, more spelt the, the Roger way, of course, M-O-O-R-E. Filling Questions Branch will select the best ones for us to discuss in a future episode. Now, in our last episode, if I can remember that far back, we, uh, we spoke to Kevin Todd Hogg, visual effects supervisor, who gave us a glimpse into his time working on Quantum of Solace. We shared our top seven picks of Roger Moore clothing, and we also reflected on the highs and lows of the, the not really in Cuba, Cuba scenes in Die Another Day. But on to today, and there are only three men I know who host this show, and I believe I'm about to introduce two of them. Firstly, He's a man who'd be on cloud nine if he could ride the silver cloud too. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Very well, thanks, Martin. It's good to be back. Of course, at this time of the episode, we always say a huge thank you to everybody that's been getting involved with us on our socials. Thank you to Roscoe Wellingtonio on Facebook. He's been lovely in listening to the show and he recently listened to our Ollie Smith interview. Ollie, of course, talked really fondly about his work with Roger Moore. And Roscoe was saying himself that he loves Roger Moore as kind of his bond. And he's actually been recently reading the audiobook of My Word is My Bond, obviously Sir Roger Moore's brilliant sort of autobiography about his time as, as James Bond. We also want to say a huge thank you to um M's Orders 007. He gave us a really nice comment on Twitter. Uh, and then just finally, just one of our uh, other regular commenters, so thank you to Dan, who gave us a really nice comment to say that it's good to see that we're back um, and finally recording again. Um, and just a really quick mention to everyone to say thank you for um, your continued support on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Um, you know, we always look forward to hearing from the Bond community, so please do keep in touch with us. Okay, yeah, thanks for those all of those messages there from our listeners. I believe, Phil, you've moved house recently. You've moved from the, the land of Connery to the land of Dalton. How's that been? I mean, just in case anybody's wondering, that's not Chesterfield, just because Dalton did technically live in Chesterfield for a little bit of time. But no, I'm, I'm now, I've switched from Scotland to Wales. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing a homage to, I did a homage to Connery and now it's a homage to Dalton. Of course, the Chesterfield does come back in Dalton's voice and just on the odd occasion, doesn't it? Like things are about to get nasty. It does go very Derbyshire in, in that 
uh, moment. I'm trying to think of any other moments when he's Bond when he, he goes a bit uh, a bit regional. Oh, there is another one in Licence to Kill just after the shootout in the bar with Pam and Benicio del Toro, isn't there, on the speedboat? You're bloody lucky to be alive! And secondly, he's a man who's so good at impressions, I suspect he actually has a voice synthesizer from Q hidden under the table. It's Adam. How's it going, Adam? Uh, I'm very good. Uh, it's been a while since we were last here, but uh, it is still the 60th anniversary year. And I went to a great event at the BFI South Bank to celebrate it. There was a big panel discussion with the big man himself, Michael G. Wilson, uh, the two writers, Purvis and Wade, Debbie McWilliams, the casting producer, and Rory Kinnear, who, it turns out, is really funny and really good value. And as it turns out, very difficult to find clips which really show off his work as Tanner. He's, he's kind of in the background chipping in a lot of the time. Uh, but it was followed by a screening of Dr. No in 4K, which looked amazing. And it does prove that point about when you see the Bond films on the big screen, you kind of notice things that you'd never seen before because your concentration is different. And I don't know if I was just being thick about this, but when he says for the very first time in Dr. No, Bond, James Bond, obviously it's the first time we've heard it. It's the first time Connery has delivered it. But is it also the first time that Bond himself as a character has ever introduced himself in that way? Because, of course, he's copying, playfully copying Sylvia Trench's intro, isn't he? And I wonder if, like, the character's thinking, well, that sounded good, I'll, I'll keep doing that. Yeah, I think that's quite good if it is taken from Sylvia Trench's character, because they were, they were planning on having her, weren't they, as a recurring girlfriend, but that never happened. It's quite a nice little legacy, isn't it, for her? Yeah, absolutely. If like the character of Bond had never introduced himself in that way before and then heard her do it and thought, oh, that's got a nice ring. It'd be weird if he was then picked up upon in a future installment. Why do you always say Barn James Barn? Well, I knew this woman once called Sylvia. She uh, snuck into my apartment and wore my shirt one time. I've still got a ton of her money I want off her. Maybe he left it in that boat that they were snogging in. Still in the Bentley. I was going to say, that Bentley was never seen again. Maybe she just went off with it to re recompense herself. So let's kick off the episode, as we always do, with On the Scene. This is where we take a closer look at uh, the fascinating and often underappreciated scenes that make the Bond franchise so appealing. And this time we have our sights set on Nassau in the Bahamas, where the reimagined, reinvented Daniel Craig Bond begins to take shape. So to remind us exactly what happens, it's a man who has bounced back himself and gone through quite a few reinventions. It's over to Mr. Alan Partridge. A convenient caption tells us we're in the Bahamas. Hunky DC looks broody, presumably because they've lumbered him with a crap Ford hire car, but cheers himself up by smashing a rude old German's Range Rover in a valet park. Are you going to tag this or make me wait? He sneaks into a CCTV hut extremely easily and whacks on a DVD of frizzy-haired Ron and Demetrios texting Madagascar. He gasps for a bit with a blonde fitty at reception who's trying to pretend she doesn't want to bang him right there and then. Then shows off his bright blue budgie smugglers to Solange, who's made the daft choice to ride a horse down a very narrow beach in a bouncy bikini. M gets a late call from young Prince Philip to tell her Bond sat in his undies browsing the big baddie database with her password. How does he know these things? Bond wins Demetrios' Aston off him before rubbing salt in the wound by running off to get freaky with his Mrs. Solange while the Shifra gives him a right telling off. Bond wells around the block for no reason, awkwardly tries to question her while they're getting jiggy on the carpet, then kills the mood just as he's about to get a blowy by ordering Bolly for one and buggering off to kill her husband. The end. <laughs> 
Thanks a lot, Alan. So, of course, Casino Royale, one of our favourite Bond films here in the cubby hole. And there's quite a lot to unpack in this scene. It's, it's quite, a, quite a quick scene, but uh, quite a lot happening here. And we've said in the past that Casino Royale is kind of this, this timeless film. It feels very timeless, which is great going back to it all the time. But uh, there are a couple of moments here that maybe do date the film. The, the Ford Mondeo, the, the Sony Ericsson, the, the CDs that he's playing in the, in the guard room. That kind of adds to the charm of these scenes, I feel. I'd argue that this is where Martin Campbell kind of excels in kind of moving the, uh, the plot, moving the narrative along. Because actually, if you do, if you analyze these scenes too much, they don't really make a lot of sense. What was his plan if someone didn't think that he was the valet? How was he going to sneak into that guard room otherwise? But it, it doesn't really matter. I feel like I don't care in these Martin Campbell installments. He's he's moving the story along and uh, and we get to see Daniel Craig looking cool and sophisticated and also driving the Ford. So it's, it's a great little combination, I feel. I agree, Marcus. I think we've said previously the fact that, you know, the great cinematography of, of this, particularly this scene, you know, you could kind of drop it into any modern Bond or any modern action film and it'd still look really crisp and really clean. I actually prefer the the sort of kind of down-to-earth nature in this film when you compare it to things like Quantum of Solace where, you know, M's got this really bizarre kind of sci-fi computer screen that she can sort of move around. You know, we get much more kind of sci-fi going into the later Daniel Craig films. This one feels a lot more grounded and a lot more base level espionage in this. You know, Bond has to use his initiative to get into the security room, even though it's it's ridiculously easy for him. There's also some great little moments of comedy as well. You know, the fact that obviously he's, he's kind of, it just takes the, the insults from the German tourists and then gets his revenge by reversing the Range Rover. I'm also always entertained by the fact he's probably driving about 70 mile an hour in that four one day. He's not going slowly through Nassau. And he's just got his mobile phone in his other hand, you know, not really paying attention to the road. So it's it, there's quite a few sort of entertaining little moments. But I just think, as you say, Martin, there's just so much that happens in a really short space of time. There's so much to divulge in, in the scenes, but it all flows quite naturally. Yeah, I, I agree with what you say about that sort of base level espionage. It does all harken back to the early Connery films, doesn't it? Everything's moving the story along. And yet, actually, the pacing is very relaxed. Campbell's very happy to indulge in the look of these Bahamas clubs and beaches and, you know, how Bond looks and his style, as well as Daniel Craig's kind of physicality and movement. He is extremely pretty in these scenes. He's kind of showing off a bit of model good looks and genuine sort of muscularity we've not really seen since Lazenby in the role, I guess. I think what's also great about this little collection of scenes is they actually foreshadow the rest of the film. You have Bond beating the villain in a poker game. You have him seducing an enemy agent who winds up getting drowned. Even Solange's kind of entry shot and uh, kiss of her partner is mirrored when she enters the poker game at the club, mirrors Vesper doing it to Bond. So he's almost seeing the germ of that idea of distracting the other players because it's been done to him himself. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that before, Adam, but that's uh, I think that's an excellent point about how it's kind of a mini version of the uh, the bigger events that happen later. Uh, and I guess that, Phil, going back to what you said about him not looking at the road, I did see a comment somewhere. It's not my joke, but someone did refer back to uh, Q's line of uh, he's got a, a license to kill, not to break the traffic laws. So I think he should be paying a bit closer attention in that particular scene. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the, these scenes particularly as well, I think there's sort of elements of callbacks to previous Bond films, which are dealt with more subtly than we saw in Dying Other Day as well, because, you know, look at things like those panning shots coming into Nassau and, and you know, and obviously the, the way that all the, the dockyard is and, you know, kind of looking at Daniel Craig emerging from the ocean is very much like Honey Rider in Doctor No. You know, there's very there's a lot of similarities to that. Yeah, I think the callback I like the most is that we have a return here to Bond getting very flirty with hotel receptionists. It's right there in Doctor No when someone's kind of eyeing him up just as he sort of walks off to his room. Uh, I mean, the eye acting between Daniel Craig and I went and Googled her because she's so good in that little scene. It's Christina Cole. Shout out to her. I mean, just the flirty eye contact between him and that blonde receptionist is amazing. It's very reminiscent of Valerie Leon giving him uh, the message in Spy Who Loved Me. Do you remember that little that little scene? I have a message for you. I think you just delivered it. Yeah, I think it starts even earlier, doesn't it? When he gets out of the Ford Mondeo, he turns the head of those tennis players, doesn't he? So, I mean, they're not off put by what he's driving. He's uh, They only care about the, <laughs> the model good looks of Daniel. It harkens back to the thing that a lot of detractors of Bond who talk about the presentation of the women sort of forget is that Bond himself is meant to be a sex object as well. And these scenes really get that with enjoying his body as he comes out of the water, enjoying the style of him, enjoy, enjoying just how nicely confident and underplaying it Daniel Craig is. It really does allow you to mellow in that in quite a nice way. And just to go back to your point, Adam, on the um, obviously Christina Cole's representation of the receptionist, that is also a really important bit of dialogue because of the fact that she kind of alludes to how much of a dick kind of Demetrios is. The fact that, you know, I wouldn't reveal that to him is not one to take bad news. And, and it's, you know, it's that sense that actually, right, so this is someone I need to be on the radar with. So again, it's just really clever how that builds up and the fact that, you know, even though they're flirting, Bond is still able to to get that information out of her. You're right. Even the receptionist kind of knows he's a badden. And do you know how you know he's a badden? Because his key ring with the car key on is a key of the stupid little Aston Martin model. I mean, what, what is he, 12 or something? And he's a little model of his own car on his key ring. Even the dealer's really happy he loses to Bond. She does that really smug, uh, Monsieur loses. And she's like, yeah, sock it to him. I think he bought it from the 007 store. It's quite overpriced, that key ring, Adam. <laughs> Because if you look at the keyring, it's actually a little DB. This is how anoraki I get. It's actually an Aston Martin DBS, and obviously he's got. So he's even got the wrong keyring. So it's just like, how much of a prat does he? He wants something that's better than what he's got. There's a lot of kind of funny car gags, like the little silly keyring in this. Is I mean, you know, David Arnold's music is great throughout this whole sequence because there isn't that much dialogue, so it's powering a lot of it. And I love how there's that kind of exciting orchestration of Chris Cornell's title song, and then the humour that it pulls back and just reveals Bond in a Ford hire car, which isn't quite what we're expecting. And it also lends into the fact that we are seeing Bond become Bond at this point in the film. He's still green and early on, and he's kind of having to work his way up to having the nice car being able to flirt properly because it's interesting when you get to those Solange scenes how you know that sort of first dialogue is really loaded and suggestive and playful and then when they're actually getting hands-on in the room it actually gets a bit on the nose and a bit rubbish because he sort of doesn't quite know what he's doing yet in a weird way. Mention Solange a bit more as well because I think she gets a really rough deal in this I mean it's the fact that she's stuck with Demetrios she tries to you know be the distraction for him at the poker table and then also you know she befriends Bond he basically sees her as a, you know, just an information font. So he basically uses her for, for what she knows about Demetrios. And then she gets murdered in, you know, off camera. So it's kind of, it's a really raw deal she gets in the end, I think. 
I agree with you, Phil. I think uh, Katerina Marino does a quite a good job, actually. A very small part, but she's quite memorable. I think that's that might be one of the reasons they have have her riding the horse on the beach. Apparently, she was injured falling off of a horse before she went to the audition for Casino Royale. Uh, but Martin Campbell really wanted her to to play the part, so she was given two months to rehabilitate and and learnt to to do it herself. So uh, yeah, no stunt woman required. I did always wonder what the point of that big white horse was. I mean, it's way too big for the beach. It's hardly a symbol of her innocence, her being the sort of lamb to the slaughter, because she says that she knowingly sleeps around with dickheads. It would be funny because like she's being followed by a load of small black children, isn't she? That could have been an interesting symbol of uh, Western imperialism if she'd just mowed them all down on a white horse. I think that would have got through the senses, just, you know, a load of small children being massacred by, you know, being trampled by a horse. It's a good point, though. It is a danger. Surely she needs a permit to do that kind of horse riding on the beach. Yeah. Probably quite lax in the health and safety in Nassau. That's what first sort of puts them on each other's radar. They're just going way too fast through the centre of this place. Um, I guess the great unanswered question about these scenes are, who is M in bed with? I mean, we assume it's Mr M, you know, but, but then we don't know that for definite. There's no other sign that she is married. I mean, is this Tanner? We don't see Tanner for a, another film. Is this him sleeping his way into the top ranks? Is it Raoul Silver? Is that why he's got such a sort of, you know, an obsession with her in Skyfall? Is it Felix Leiter? We don't know. Have you usurped my crazy theories, Adam? This is the type of thing I'd come up with. It's, no, it's it, surely it's Mr. M. It's not going to be anybody else. Unless, are we questioning M's fidelity here? It's not fidelity if she's unmarried and having a good time with a young sort of jobbing, uh, enterprising MI6 staffer who wants to become the PA. I wouldn't put it past Rory Kinnear. He's good fun. He's a laugh. She literally says in Skyfall, here's to my late husband. So it's, so unless she gets married between Quantum of Solace and then he dies rapidly by the time we get to Skyfall. Well, there's quite a large gap between the films, so it's not, not entirely implausible. Yeah, and Judy Dench's husband in real life died like in the early 90s or something. So when she says late husband, she, she could have meant from decades ago. Well, I've worked out who it is. It's the Admiral from um, Tomorrow Never Dies because it's them continuing on their relationship. Because although they hate each other in Tomorrow Never Dies, they actually secretly want to be together. So it's Jeffrey Palmer. Admiral Roebrook, is that? That's, that's, not the, <laughs> that's not the guy who's killed by Xenia's thighs, is it? That's another Admiral. No, that's Admiral Chuck Farrell. That's Chucky Farrell's, not Roebuck. Yeah, we, we talked about this before, didn't we, when we reviewed Tomorrow Never Dies, the fact that in As Time Goes By, are they actually playing the same characters as in the Bond films? That's just M and Admiral Roebuck at home. So, on to the main feature of the episode. It's for your ears only, the interview segment, where we speak to Bond alumni and fans about their personal thoughts and feelings on the franchise. And this time, it was our pleasure to invite David Lowbridge-Ellis, well-known and well-respected in the Bond community for his License to Queer website and podcast. He shared his thoughts on how Bond can be viewed from different angles. So, without further ado, let's hear what he had to say. Thanks so much for joining us, David. I thought we'd start with a question we've asked all of our guests this year. What were your impressions of the latest Bond film, No Time to Die, and of the Daniel Craig era in general? 
Um, up and down with the Daniel Craig era, to be perfectly honest. Um, no Time to Die itself, I, I, I love, uh, and I stand by that point of view. As soon as I finished seeing it for the first time, I had that kind of, you know, I love it, but I don't know why I love it reaction. And hopefully certain revelations about a, uh, the director <laughs> will not tarnish um, my view of the film next time I watch it. I do tr always try to divorce myself from like the creator and anything problematic in their life and their art and, and that side of things. But uh, yeah, I, I, I love, well, I loved it enough to write a, what was it, about 12,000 word dissection of it from a queer point of view. Yeah, so I, I thought No Time to Die was a real highlight of Daniel Craig's uh, run. Nothing for me will ever really top Casino Royale because for me, it's the ultimate Bond picture. It's a deconstructs, then reconstructs. It's like everything you want, really. There's, I wouldn't change a single thing about Casino Royale. Uh, and then I've never actually warmed, and this is going to really, some people are just going to stop listening at this point. I've never really warmed to Skyfall. I, I don't really kind of think Spectre is much worse than Skyfall in lots of ways. For me, they're kind of, so Casino Royale's right up here and then Quantum, but then Skyfall and Spectre have never been a couple of my favourites. So for me, I'm glad No Time to Die kind of brought the batting average back up. And, and, and for those who haven't read all 12,000 words on, on No Time to Die mm. from you, what, what does a queer sort of a perspective... Well, exactly, yeah, I mean, totally. But what does the queer perspective on that film look like? Because obviously, the, you know, Q is, is very uh, openly gay in the film, we, we assume. There seems to be a lot of chumminess, I guess, between Bond and Felix. What did you make of it, I guess, from that point of view? So anyone who's been on the website um, will know this already but if you haven't then i i use queer in the academic sense uh, that's been used for about the last three decades i must say i've never actually formally studied this it's just what i've kind of picked up along the way and particularly over the last couple of years doing all this writing i've learned an awful lot but one of the first names i came across was alexander doty who pointed out that you don't need lgbtq plus characters to be able to see something from a queer point of view because let's face it there are a lot of queer people in the world and there's not a lot of queer art. So we kind of have to find our meaning from the stuff that doesn't feature um, LGBTQ plus characters. So a lot of the stuff in No Time to Die, yeah, you've got Q and I did write a couple of thousand words about that and the, you know, my generally favourable kind of appraisal of how Q was, uh, Q was treated. And yeah, there's the, the latent homoeroticism between Bond and Felix, which you get right back in Fleming. And in most of the film incarnations as well, there's a lot of other writers on, on my website who have kind of picked up on that and ran with that as well. But um, I end up writing mostly about Bond himself because I think Bond is a very, very queer character. He doesn't really fit the sort of heteronormative mould. It's, it's that search for identity, particularly in the Daniel Craig films and purpose, which is really central to No Time to Die, isn't it? After the first opening title sequence, he's cut adrift with no purpose in life and the rest of it is trying to kind of find a way to live. And I think that really resonates with queer people for whom we don't really have a pre-written script a lot of the time. That very heteronormative, get married, you know, have kids go to garden centres on Sundays. I've just literally got back from a garden centre. Die. You know, it's that... <laughs> sorry, that sounds very pessimistic, I know. But it, it, we don't have those sort of pre-written scripts a lot of the time. And I think Bond himself doesn't have much of that as well. He just kind of keeps going through the motions and trying to kind of find the purpose in life. And I'm making it too academic here, but that's how, what I've always connected with, with the Bond character, I think. 
that sounds good, doesn't it? Or maybe Bond in a garden centre, maybe that's Bond 26. That could be one of the other set pieces. Yeah, a bit of more, the, uh, bit more of a film. Harry Palmer thing to do, <laughs> isn't it, than a James Bond thing? And in terms of going back uh, to the beginning, where, when and where did it all start for you, your, your passion, your love of Bond? And uh, when did you decide to start the, uh, the website, License to Queer? So I think probably the, the genesis of the website has been in my head for about 10 years or so. But my passion for Bond goes back to when I was about six or seven, saw Goldfinger. Uh, I'm not going to launch into a Piers Brosnan impersonation and I didn't see it on Putney High Street. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, saw Goldfinger, I think, with my grandparents and I was hooked from that moment. I tried to read Thunderball when I was eight, but read most of the books in my in my teenage years, by which point I'd seen all the films as well. So I, I was utterly obsessed. And then Goldeneye came out on the Nintendo 64 when I was 15. That was kind of a, a bit more of a kind of social dimension. More of my friends were into it then. So yeah, the passion goes back then. But I've always sort of connect nearly always connected with the Bond character all but for a couple of years of my life where I kind of thought oh I, I was kind of coming into my my gay identity although I hadn't told anyone else I kind of started telling myself that I was gay so I thought oh Bond's not for me because there's no way Bond could possibly be a queer character and of course I that sounds ridiculous from my perspective now because as I say I've written I've written about 200,000 words in the last two years uh, on the website, just about that very topic, uh, and then had about 15 other people write articles and do podcasts and short stories and cocktail recipes and all sorts of other other things. So obviously that that does seem ridiculous now. And um, and with License to Queer, you've sort of said that your main mission with the sign, with the writing, and, and now with the podcast is to kind of uncover why James Bond has so much LGBTQ plus appeal. And um, you've talked yeah. about the character of Bond himself. What would you say it is in sort of the wider films itself, or themselves rather, that have that sort of appeal as well? I think a lot of it is the lifestyle elements. And I know there's a lot of there's a lot of people with social media accounts which are kind of focused on the lifestyle but I do think that Bond himself he's very glamorous and he's kind of you know he's constantly on the move and he's that kind that restlessness in a sense which I think appeals to queer people so on the website I've got uh, you know writers across the LGBTQ plus spectrum lesbian people bisexual people trans people non-binary people uh, an asexual writer has just contributed and I think it's really important to try and get those different points of view because queer fans have often been left out of the conversation around Bond, especially if they're not white gay guys. And I know I'm a white, white gay guy as well. Um, but that's why I want to see why other queer people connect so much with Bond. And there's a lot of overlap, you know, as, but queer people actually are, are quite different. So it's nice to get those different points of view. And in terms of queer characters in the Bond series, Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid in Diamonds Are Forever are beloved by many fans. Uh, even those who don't like the film tend to enjoy the performances of Bruce Glover and Putter Smith. Uh, but obviously their portrayal could be seen as rather unfavourable. Do you think it's a positive representation? My overall point of view is that it's a, it's a positive representation just because it's there. 51 years ago, which was virtually unheard of. Um, the ending is deeply problematic, especially the very final bit, although lots of people haven't. A lot of straight people don't get the ending of Diamonds of Forever, <laughs> I find, or they don't even want to try and understand what's going on there. But in summary, you know, that ending is really problematic because, you know, it's essentially a gay joke, an expense at, at, at gay men. But if you kind of put that bit to one side, 
you know, you've actually got a romance between two men that's treated as something quite mature and we're not, yeah, it's there to kind of scare us and they're othered in the sense of, you know, they are not normal. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very positive because for probably, oh God, until at least my late teens when I stayed up watching programmes like Queer as Folk with the volume down on TV, I think they were probably the, you know, one of the few representations of any kind of queer people I'd ever seen. So back then, back then we could take, we, we took what we got. We didn't have Heartstopper back then, like the kids today. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, queer characters and, and characters who can be seen as queer extend far beyond Wicked in, in the Bond franchise. Which are the ones for you who I guess sort of stand out as being particularly effective, but also I guess others which, which seem now egregious or perhaps even cringeworthy? Oh, God, this is a real test of my memory then. So uh, the one that a lot of people don't really, re again, a lot of people don't realise that he's coded as queer. And I use the term coded an awful lot because without explicitly stating it, it's pretty obvious to everybody. Um, Hilary Bray in um, On a Majesty's Secret Service, or at least when Bond is playing Hilary Bray, that, that's that's one of my favourites. I even bought a cardigan so, <laughs> so I could perfect that Hilary Bray look. Um, I've yet to take up brass rubbing, but it, it's on the to-do list. The one that a lot of people think about is Pussy Galore. Funnily enough, I actually finished rereading Goldfinger this morning, which is not one of my favourite Fleming books. But the film actually, I think, does a decent job of portraying the character who actually, I don't know why, and I haven't written my Goldfinger queer review yet, but I was making some notes earlier today. And I don't know why people, I suppose I do know why, but people jump to the conclusion that Pussy Galore is a lesbian. Actually, she could be asexual. That could be the immune, but a lot of people don't really understand asexuality. I'll pile my hands up, you know, until I had a, um, a really detailed conversation with an asexual writer on the website. And I've got a couple of friends who identify as, a as asexual identities. I didn't know much, to be perfectly frank. I guess the interesting thing, and, and we'll go on to the sort of Fleming books, because um, I know you're a big fan of them, and, and I am as well. The, the, the interesting thing for me about, certainly the, in the early films and how they translate, is that they sort of tone down the films, um, the queer elements, which are much stronger in the Fleming, like Pussy Galore in the novel, as far as I remember, it, is much more clearly defined as a lesbian. Oh, yeah, uh, totally. But Rosa, but Rosa Klebb is the other one. Like the scene in the book where she's briefing Tatiana Romanova is much more forceful and much more predatory in a sexual way than it is in the film, where it's kind of just suggested with little touches on the shoulder and curlings of the hair, I guess. Are there other moments in the books that you've sort of found that with? I think it's really interesting that, you know, you, you think that that's subtle <laughs> with Rosa Klebb in From Russia With Love, the, the film version, I mean. And perhaps it's because as, as, as a queer viewer of those films, I am very sensitive to anything that will, especially now that I've written so much about it, you know, I'm sensitive, very sensitive to particular costuming choices and just even certain looks or intonation. And I think it's probably because I've, I've trained myself to spot those signs in a way. I mean, in the novel of From Russia With Love, Fleming actually identifies her as a neuter. Whatever that means, it's not actually clear, but it's probably nowadays, we'd probably use the term aromantic. So she's pansexual and aromantic. 
So she doesn't want any kind of relationship, but she will have sex with uh, a man or a woman. Interestingly, in the novel of uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, the novelization written by Christopher Wood, not the Fleming book, he identifies specifically that Smirsh are big employers of transvestites as well. So I'm not, I'm not, not sure what he was thinking with that recently, but I, that one jumped out to me when I, when I read that one. Queerness is often a trait which is kind of exclusive to the villain characters. Um, mm. We're now in a, in a place where, you know, a lot of campaigners against the portrayal of people with facial disfigurements have, have taken the series to task because, you know, the villains mm -hmm. always have scars. Yeah. In a similar way, is the fact that it's sort of a villain thing to be queer, does it detract from your enjoyment of either the early or the later Bond films? Or do you, do you just kind of accept it as a, a product of the time, I guess? I, yeah, there are an awful lot of problematic elements in any Bond film or book, but you can be critical of something and love it at the same time. And I think that's where people often go wrong, particularly in social media, where things become polarised very, very quickly. And I think in Fleming's mind, if you he didn't kind of understand, I don't know, I'm not going to psychoanalyse Ian Fleming, and I'm not going to pour vitriol in on him either. You know, he uh, doesn't totally doesn't deserve it. And he's not here to defend himself. But I think he used a lot of society's prejudices to create those villain characters, even if he didn't have those views himself. So one of my favourite moments in any Fleming novel is a very fleeting moment in Moonraker where Bond is waiting to speak with the chief of the police, essentially. And he's waiting in a police station and he kind of reflects about the sort of people who would usually be sitting in a police station, including homosexuals, waiting for their parents to turn up to try and bail them out. He doesn't hate homosexuals. He kind of pities them in a sense. But then in other books like Goldfinger, Bond really kind of, you know, pities them, but also there's kind of disgust there as well. Now, the irony is, of course, that Fleming himself had mostly gay male friends. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I, I think Fleming was quite curious, even to the point, maybe even obsessed with homosexuality in some ways. Maybe, you know, I'm not saying that he was queer himself, but trying to understand it. And he, he drops, I've, I wrote a piece about this very early on in the life of the website, about his use of words like gay, and I'm not going to say it, but the F word, um, and queer. And he was writing at a time where those words did have homosexual connotations, and so I think he's sometimes, not all the time, but I think he's sometimes playing with that and making the audience kind of when they read the words kind of almost sit up a bit straighter and or not straight um, and kind of and kind of think, oh, actually, is there is there something queer going on here? But at the same time, that doesn't stop queer people enjoying those texts. You mentioned Hilary Bray um, earlier, but we were just wondering, are there any other particular characters or scenes uh, from Bond which you feel have a very strong queer element or interpretation that I guess the sort of casual viewer might well miss? Licence to Kill is one of my favourite Bond films. And that film has a, a really, I mean, it's so homoerotic. You've got the whole story structured around Bond getting revenge for Felix. I know that there's the wife character as well, but it's essentially that film is structured around that. And you do kind of start to question why is Bond so angry and taking this so personally? And it's the same thing with Sanchez. Why does he trust Bond so quickly? The only explanation really is that He's in love with the guy. And I know Robert Darvey, um, he actually said that himself, that that was actually intentional. 
um, he was playing the character in that way anyway, beyond just wearing a pink shirt, which is a bold choice for a man in 1989. So yeah, if I ever want to recommend a film to people to go and sit there and re-watch with queer lenses, I, I, I'll often cite License to Kill because it's there all the way through the film. And of course, looking more recently to uh, No Time to Die, we get Q, of course, kind of offhandedly mentioning his male companion for his dinner date. Uh, what would be your kind of perspective going forward? Would you like to see more overtly queer characters or do you think the Daniel Craig era kind of got the tone correct with normalising and usualizing queer characters? It's really interesting you use the term usualize then because the Daniel Craig films do go further than others however they're still nowhere near representative of real life and I don't just mean do it in a tokenistic way but it shouldn't have to be and I like the way that he come into conversation very matter-of-factly no one comments on it which is what it's like in real life you know if I drop my husband into conversation people don't bat an eyelid um, even though there's always a little part of my brain that goes, you know, a bit of fight or flight kicks in and a bit of adrenaline, you know, even all these years later, you know, um, I still get that. But no, you, people aren't surprised. So more of that, really. One of the times when we meet Bond in the pre-title sequence, you know, the spoil of me is fresh in my head. So I'm thinking of that chalet and he's in the arms of a woman. One of the times it just needs to be a man. And let's just break that taboo there. Because let's face it, he's a secret agent. He's a man of the world. He's had sex with a man at some point. So they just need to just do it once and just go, yeah, done it, move on. Don't make a big deal of it. David, returning to your website, another part of it is, is dedicated to sharing um, James Bond-inspired cocktail recipes, many of which you, you kind of created yourself. Um, do you have any sort of particular favourites that you've um, come up with? And also, I guess, extending that, are there any kind of James Bond drinking scenes which sort of stand out as, as favourites to you in the series? Oh, God, there's so many. I, um, I know people love Bond for lots of different reasons, but drinks is one of my favourite reasons to love Bond. We're, funny enough, my husband and I were talking about this earlier today, and he's got some credits on the website as well. Um, actually, Bond's own taste in drinks is pretty basic. As I'm sure we all know, in Fleming, he drinks far more champagne uh, and beer than he does gin or vodka martinis. And he's, yeah, so Bond's own taste is, is really, really basic. Um, and to be honest, my own cocktail preferences are really basic. Once you get over four ingredients, you're just like, why? Why are you even bothering? So these are kind of, I try to make them unfussy. So you can make them, re with a couple of exceptions, most of them you can just go and get the ingredients from supermarkets and just throw them together and make it in about two minutes flat. In terms of the actual scenes in the movie, which I really, really like, I, I think the books are generally better for this because Bond does drink more of a range of cocktails. Again, pretty basic things like Americanos. He loves Americanos. That's a fact. I think that's the first drink Bond ever orders in Casino Royale. Really, really simple, you know, Campari and Red Vermouth, um, which is, you know, a fairly low alcohol drink for Bond. Uh, I'm just trying to think, have you got any favourites? Well, I was just thinking about this myself and actually I kind of like the ones because he's such a connoisseur when he has something that he absolutely hates. I always rather like it when he sort of takes a swig of Siamese vodka. Um, yeah. After or foo yuck, isn't it, in Man with the Golden Gun? Yeah. The thing is, that's just the snobbery side. And actually, Bond has awful taste in most things. 
considering that he is this lifestyle icon for a lot of people, including myself, I own the polo shirt from Casino Royale and all that kind of stuff. I've got, you know, I do that as well. But actually, he's taste in a lot of things is appallingly bad, <laughs> like martinis. Bond's martini is an absolute abomination if you talk to anyone who knows martinis. You just don't make a martini that way. It tastes awful. For a start, it tastes really just like water. It's really, really bad, but it makes it look really cool because he's so exacting and so precise over it. Well, exactly. I think that's excellent advice. Try and copy the fashion style rather than the, the drinking habits of 007. And as a wrap-up question, what for you, David, is the enduring appeal of this franchise? Why are we still so fascinated by Bond? It's a really curious one, isn't it? Um, which is my way of delaying, because that's a really difficult question to answer. Um I think a lot of it is because Bond himself is a bit of a blank slate. And I think because he is unknowable in a lot of ways, whoever we are, queer or not or whatever, I think it's quite easy for us to put ourselves in his shoes. I know, I think Kingsley Amis pointed this out first back in the 60s. You know, he is a blank slate in a lot of ways. Um, mind you, there are a lot of other blank slate characters as well. So it's, it's you know, why why this one in particular? I, I, re- I really don't know. I mean, the consensus of the people who write for the website, if there is a consensus, is that a lot of the times Bond has to overcome a lot of obstacles uh, and I've started to write more about this recently, but the, I think the, probably the thing that I like most about Bond, a bit like the character of Batman, both of those characters, I love both of those characters because they do persevere and because they are constantly facing an uphill struggle. Uh, and I think a lot of people, you don't have to be queer to relate to that, but I think a lot of queer people do relate to that because we are constantly on our guard. You know, you walk down a street and you have to make a mental calculation about, am I safe here? That's a very, very spy thing to do. So I think a lot of us can relate to that. So that was David Lowbridge-Ellis, very thought-provoking exchange. Like many of us, he has a very personal, private connection to Bond, uh, but he's tried to kind of expand it into a more analytical approach, kind of concerning what, what Bond might mean to the whole of society. So yeah, really interesting to get his thoughts and um, perspective. Yeah, I loved his reading on Bond himself, actually, as a queer character, talking about, you know, his sexual taste, the fact that he doesn't have long-term relationships, they're all short-term dalliances. It does make you reassess Bond's relationship with his male allies, doesn't it? If there is any sort of, you know, wider truth in that, you know, Bond and Felix, how far back do they go? Bond and Tiger Tanaka on that Tokyo subway train. No one's going to bother them underground, are they? And in the bathhouse, of course. Well, Bond and Silver, the obvious relationship. But you ruined that earlier in the episode, Adam. You said Silver was in bed with Judy Dench. Well, I have to say, we kind of, Phil had a bit of a sort of crazy theory about all of this last season. We sort of poo-pooed him. And now, actually, I'm thinking, was he a bit ahead of the curve? And was he was he a bit more knowing than us about the whole thing? That could be where we see Bond go in the future. You never know. But it's, yeah, it's great. Obviously, I wasn't able to to join you guys for the, the chat with there, but it's great to hear from him and, you know, and get some of his expertise on, obviously, you know, the change in emphasis of the Bond character, you know, and, and some of his past relationships. We, we don't really know, obviously, where it's going to go in the future, but it's really interesting to get that analysis of, of you know, of Bond's past and, and, you know, maybe his his backstory a bit more. 
I tell you what, the other one is Bond and M himself going back to From Russia with Love when they're all listening to the recording with uh, Tanya and M's very quick to turn it off just as Bond's about to outline a sort of interesting experience that they shared together. That's all, money, Penny, that's all. Maybe that's why Sir Freddie Gray is so shocked at the end of The Spy Who Loved Me. He thought that uh, he was in an exclusive relationship with Bond. Is that why uh, Freddie Gray and M are always on hand to sort of have a little look at Bond getting it on with someone else? I wonder about Q's involvement with this, because I'm sure that Bond and Q must have, you know, at some point on a, on a lad's night away. They do share that hotel room in Licence to Kill. Q categorically denies the incident ever occurred. So, on to our next segment, which is the 007 Best. This is where we decide on a top seven ranking in a variety of Bond categories. And this time we're doing a countdown, which rather conveniently only has seven options. We'll be running through the other seven actors who have played Bond's brother from Langley, Felix Leiter. So, I mean, an apology, first of all, honourable mention perhaps to Bernie Casey, who could be counted as, uh, as number eight. But as long-time listeners of the show will know, Felix has had quite a, a bad rap in our discussions over the years. Uh, so this is a chance to redress the balance and, uh, and show some lighter love, at least to some of the portrayals of this CIA operative. So let's start with number seven. And in at number seven, we have John Terry's Felix Leiter from The Living Daylights. So that's John Terry, not the former Chelsea and England Association football captain. Although, coincidentally, this one does also seem to enjoy female company. But uh, but yeah, I think this uh, quite an easy placement on the list. I think we're in general agreement that this is the, the least memorable of the official lighters. Uh, he gets barely any screen time, pretty wooden in the screen time that he does get. I mean, Dalton tries to help him, I feel. Dalton's quite chummy with this lighter, but uh, we don't get anything in response. Just a very, uh, almost as if he's reading from an auto cue, uh, his lines. So yeah, I mean, maybe he was a good actor, but we certainly don't really see it in The Living Daylights. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I always remember his light blue jacket, though. That's quite memorable. So I mean, it's, it's never a good sign if you're outdone by your own jacket uh, in a motion picture. The other trouble is he doesn't do anything. It's just he's there for like two minutes. And the two women that basically kind of kidnap Bond almost, but kind of rescue him at the same time, you know, they, they have more involvement than John Terry does. It's just the fact that he kind of, he stands there and it's just like, James Bond, what are you doing here? It's like, well, what are you doing here? It's just, there's no point in his presence at all in these scenes. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it sort of feels like they just wanted a Felix in the film, but had no real idea of how to cram it in, because obviously Dalton's taken over as Bond. Felix, live and let die notwithstanding, is still very associated with Connery. So it's sort of a deliberate attempt to bring back the character to harken back to those older classic films, those tougher-edged ones, which Dalton's trying to sort of, you know, recalibrate in his performance. Um, yeah, but you're right. He doesn't even get a decent dialogue scene with Bond. We just get that. Let's talk shop. And then Bond just reports back everything they talked about to Kara rather than chatting with Felix about it. Number six. And so in at number six, we have Rick Van Nutter, uh, of course, who appeared in Thunderball. A bit more memorable than John Terry, of course. He does have a bit more interaction with Sean Connery's Bond. And, you know, he, he does give that confidence of um, an actor that's, you know, that obviously by this point we're familiar with Felix Leiter as the kind of supporting character to Bond. But 
really he's again he's a little bit forgettable in terms of he's, he's not really in it that much and you know and he, by the end he's kind of you know he doesn't really add anything to the script as such oh i'm not sure about that i think it's a bit of a shame rick van nutter's so low down i think along with jack lord um he looks the most like a sort of cia hero agent and sort of bond counterpart and i think he is a bit more actively involved in things you know he, he's there with bond searching for the bombs he has that bit as we've said babysitting domino for the entire junk canoe when bond runs off and never goes back um i rather like him i rather like rick van nutter i think he looks and feels more the part and he's much more active in the story for me than felix's generally are who sort of get a bit basil expositiony sometimes yeah i feel like his general appearance he looks like quite a good character actor uh, so i feel like well there was there's more depth to his character certainly than than john terry but yeah i think we mentioned previously that we'd like to see what actually happened between rick van nutter's lighter and domino what did they, what did they do to while away the hours well, probably nothing too kinky, because I think this lighter gives the strongest impression that he's a bit attracted to maybe being in love with Bond than all the others, you know, when he sends him off into the final battle. And uh, Connery has that line, oh, and the kitchen sink too. And he goes, I knew anything looks good. Yeah, I take more of a wholesome view to Domino and Lighter. I just think they actually play dominoes. Maybe that should have been in Never Say Never Again. It's just Felix Lighter and Domino playing dominoes. Do you think they should, if if Domino is ever playing dominoes, they should get um, Rennie Mathis in to commentate, as he loves to commentate pointlessly on all games? It needs to be really obvious and patronising. So it's, it's not like it's, you know, actually, he's not saying anything to advance the game or to advance the commentary. It's just something like, she needs to place a domino. She's joined a five onto a five. There are two dots on that tile that represents a two. The dots are in white, but the domino itself is black. Number five. And in at number five is Jack Lord, the original Dr. No Felix Leiter, uh, until Jeffrey Wright, probably the most well-known actor to play the role, thanks to his later success in Hawaii Five-O. Uh, in fact, he only wasn't casting Goldfinger because by that point he wanted star billing a bigger part and more money rather than just sitting in a KFC for the, the whole latter part of the film. Uh, so they got rid of him for that one. Um, but he's good Jack Lord, isn't he? He looks the part, you know, he's largely in those nice shades to give him a bit of mystery. He's got a very smooth American drawl. So yeah, probably a little bit of a shame he's so low down because I think he's pretty decent. But um, I guess another Felix being a bit of a victim of not being crazy involved in the plot, I guess. Jack Lord is just really, you know, sophisticated. He could probably match Connery for the sort of sophistication levels. Um, even though we kind of know that, you know, as CIA, he's probably not held in as high regard, you know, from the, an international espionage um, point of view. But, you know, again, Jack Lord does a really brilliant job with quite a short appearance on screen. And it kind of it establishes that character, for, you know, the actors that will go on to play him. Yeah, I'm quite a fan of Jack Lord in, in Doctor No. I think he... He works well. I'm not sure. What's your opinion, guys, on the chemistry? I don't know whether I'm not sure whether he has much chemistry with Connery might be the problem. But maybe those different energies that they bring somehow worked quite well, even when they're when they're on screen together. I think it does. And, and of course, this is the first time that Bond and Felix have actually met. They don't know each other at um, the start of Dr. No. So they're kind of building a friendship before your eyes. I think he's sort of a victim and ultimately left hanging because of Quarrel and because John Kitzmiller is so great in that role. He's the ally you really remember. Uh, he's the much more interesting and memorable character. And of course, he goes to Crab Key with Bond. He's much more involved at the action. So I think he's sort of a victim of the Bond-Quarrel relationship being the far more interesting dynamic. 
Gently, bud, gently. Let's not get excited. And in at number four, we have Jeffrey Wright, who, of course, played Felix between 2006 and 2021, the entirety of Craig's era, although he was conspicuously absent in both Skyfall and Spectre before returning and dying in No Time to Die. I wish that he was a bit higher on our list, really, because I think Jeffrey Wright is a, a great actor. I liked his introduction in Casino. Uh, I, I enjoyed his scenes in No Time to Die as well before before he dies. And uh, it's just I feel like it's just quantum that lets him down where he's just kind of hanging around in the background and, and sulking. Not not really his fault, I guess. Uh, so, yeah, I feel like there's so much potential with Jeffrey Wright's lighter that I suppose maybe the screenwriters and the producers had enough on their plate trying to make the, the Bond storyline make sense. So uh, lighter was sidelined quite a bit. And, uh, and only really returned when it was when it was too late. I agree, Martin. I think that um, you know Jeffrey Wright. It was kind of a reimagining of of Leiter as as the new era of Bond actor came in. He also kind of offsets Craig's moodiness. He's frustrated with his colleagues, and you know he feels like he you know the bureaucracy of being part of the CIA means he can't do an effective job. But he kind of sees Bond as an equal. And so you get that, you know, particularly in Casino Royale, you get those great interactions where, you know, Felix Leiter actually stops Bond from doing something that could jeopardise the mission. You know, he, he grabs hold of him in the stairwell and takes the knife off him. That sort of great interaction where they do become friends. It give, does give more gravity to the fact that, you know, obviously when Felix dies, it is kind of... I was In some ways, I was quite angry that he died in No Time to Die because I, I think that kind of betrayed the character's relationship with Bond. But yeah, I, all credit to Jeffrey Wright. He is, you know, he is one of the best Felix Leiters out there, I think. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Like the, the reason his death doesn't work in No Time to Die is that we just haven't seen that friendship between Bond and Leiter developed enough over the previous films, even though they get two stabs at it. I mean, Quantum of Solace in particular could have benefited so much more with him and Bond working together through a period of the story and not just having a sort of good but largely expository, you know, bar scene. Because they do that interesting thing in that they shade in that he is an agent rising through the ranks as well. His career is quite parallel to Bond. He's trapped by David Harbour's superior in Quantum, but then, of course, he's a man of authority and has really gone up the ranks by the time of No Time to Die. Uh, I always nickname him Glumguts because of, as you said, he looks very miserable throughout his two films. And it is lovely the scenes in, you know, with them clubbing in Jamaica, playing the dice game in No Time to Die, because at least he's finally looking happy and he feels chummy with Bond. And yeah, they just needed so much more of that. But it was great casting of him. You know, Casino Royale was very much an attempt to level up the franchise to make it a bit more prestige in its outings and the fact that he is a tony emmy and golden globe winner for angels in america means he is an esteemed character actor who's doing that it's not a diversity choice he's genuinely one of the great american actors out there number three in at number three and i feel i should probably take some responsibility for this one because i did vote him quite highly on my personal list it's of course the jolly felix Leiter. it's check linda what kind say about Felix Leiter in Goldfinger well he he does try to help Bond with his fellow CIA agent but they really don't have any grip of what uh, Goldfinger is up to you know Bond is left kind of to his own devices on the stud farm they're also not that great at following odd job because they get lost um, and obviously the signal then is lost so you know Chet Linder's Felix is more interested in lunch than he is with actually pursuing the mission but I just like a jolly Felix. I just like a jolly Felix, Felix Leiter. And I get the feeling, you know, 
if you want to, I think we've come back to the sort of stag do moments of if Bond was out on his stag do, you'd want Chet Linders Felix to be on it. You know, you get the feeling he'd be party Felix. Yeah, what can we say, Phil? That's a great question. I can't remember our individual list, but surely you must have put him as number one for him to get third on this list. Ridiculous. But yeah, I think he's uh, he's quite a, an interesting character, I would say, eating at KFC. And uh, I guess he's kind of memorable in that scene with uh, with Dink in the hotel. But yeah, come on, Phil. This is Why, why the hell is he third? I think I put him at number two. I'm not going to wade into this because I've got some explaining to do when we get to the next one. Um, first of all, I have to apologise because I assumed his name was pronounced Czech, but it isn't, in fact. It turns out it's pronounced Cease because it's short for Cecil. So I, I've been responsible for us getting that wrong for three series. So apologies there. It's interesting, though, isn't it? He's one of the few aspects of Goldfinger which isn't definitive. I think we do remember him quite a lot because he's in the most definitive Bondian film of them all. But his sort of shabby image doesn't ultimately make much impact. I also think he's strangely dim and naive about what's going on in the story, if you really look at it. You know, when they first meet at Miami and he has that line, that Goldfinger is a fabulous card player. It's not even occurred to him that he could be cheating. And then later on, when, you know, Bond's kind of led into the barn with Pussy Galore and he has that line, that's my James. It's not even occurred to him that he's a prisoner in this place and that he can't get out. They're going to, like, drop a nuke on Fort Knox, Felix. Get your ass in gear. I accept I probably shouldn't have put Cecil Linder so high, but I, you know, he's, for me, a great Felix. Yeah, that was a moment in series one, if anyone missed it. Phil famously said that uh, Cease Linda was far more attractive than Rick Van Nutter. In terms of, uh, you're just going by the looks, aren't you, Phil? Number two. Okay, so in at number two is Norman Burton from Diamonds Are Forever. So the way that we do these 007s is that in the event of a tie, whoever got the highest individual score from any of us gets to go top of the others that they're tied with. There was like a four-way tie of Felix's for number two. So that's why Cease was at three, because Phil had him very high up. Byrne comes in at two because I named him somewhat comically as my favourite of all the Felix's. However, the more I think about this, the more I'm right to say that, and I'll tell you for why. Felix Leiter, as I've said before, is basically a rubbish ally character. All he does ever is just sit around wisecracking while Bond literally does all the work. But Norman Byrne proves why that is, because he has more to do than any other Felix Leiter, and he stuffs up literally all of it. He can't find the diamonds in the coffin when they're first smuggled into America. You know, I know they're here somewhere, Jay, but I don't know where. He literally lets Tiffany Case escape with them out of the casino. Don't tell me you lost her. Yeah, we lost her. He can't even trap Sean Connery in a penthouse suite with Tiffany Case with like a lovely bed and everything, because he literally just goes out the window. So Norman Burton proves why Felix never does anything, because when he does stuff, he gets all of it wrong. That's why he's the best. Is that is that your entire argument? He's just so useless. It's just how can you... Be... He's literally allowing this international diamond smuggling ring to easily infiltrate Las Vegas. The man is a complete walking disaster. It's... Honestly, Mr Bean would have been better as a CIA agent. Well, I mean, Nigel Smallforce, it's another kettle of fish, isn't it, Phil? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I've uh, I've exhausted myself being annoyed at uh, Phil Seth Linda, so I'm, I'm already tired now to argue with you, Adam, on this <laughs> Norman Burton. <laughs> Maybe I can see where you're coming from, because if we quote the, the great Pfeiffer and Worrell, their essential Bond book, 
I think I'll quote them. They said that uh, Burton is the least likely incarnation of Lighter, and I'd agree with them on that. Uh, but I'd also I also see your point, Adam, that Diamonds Are Forever as a film as a whole is not very likely. So actually, the logic of a not very likely story together with a, a not very likely lighter, <laughs> that's easy to say, kind of works quite well. I think the the comedy of Burton's portrayal uh, it does make sense in the comedy of the of the film. So yeah, I, I can't imagine any of the other lighters actually performing as well in his incompetence as uh, as Burton does. Yeah, exactly. He is the daft American lighter for a daft American Bond film. Even in that final battle, he's got Willard White along with him and he's sort of half playing second fiddle to him. It's like even this random tycoon, even he's better in a helicopter raid than the actual Felix lighter. Number one. Well, Phil took responsibility for number three. Adam took responsibility for number two. I guess number one might be my fault. My love of live and let die. We have David Hedison's portrayal of Felix Leiter, of course, in Live and Let Die and also later in License to Kill. So I, I had him as my number one because I feel like he brings a, something a little bit different to both, even though it's a nice continuity that we get between different bonds. He brings a nice, a different style in both of them. In Roger Moore's outing, he's more of a, a chummy, nice chemistry between him and Roger. Whereas in Dalton's, we really see Hedison's acting skills, his acting chops uh, are on display quite well. <laughs> unintentional pun there as he's chopped up by the the shark uh, so yeah i really enjoy him in both of the the films for different reasons and uh, yeah i mean i would have been happy to see hedison in in more bond films really i, I totally agree martin i think that um you know david hedison is, is kind of probably the most memorable of all the felix lighters prior to jeffrey wright's um introduction during the daniel craig era and you, you re- you're right, it's the fact that he can blend that mix of, you know, co- quite comical Felix Leiter interpretation with Roger Moore's Live and Let Die out in. But then we get the emphasis that Leiter is is an older character, you know, the sense that he's trying to settle down in it or in, in License to Kill. Also, you know, there's there's a it's that sense that, you know, the job will catch up with you in the end and, and you know, you will be left to to grieve and it's it's really is it's telling of, of you know of Hedison's abilities as an actor to to portray both those those elements of the role I think yeah I, I do think uh the light the license to kill appearance is his best one the fact that he looks older and there's a real warmth and nostalgia to seeing him again and it's kind of the only time you really believe that long friendship as allies and equals between Bond and Lighter and they get that in the space of a few short scenes and it's all down to Hedison's chemistry with Dalton I mean that last sort of meeting when you know Bond catches the garter is legitimately heartbreaking that no when, you know, Della says about, you know, him getting married next is really, it really hits you, you know, even without the line, he was married once a long time ago. And ultimately, that's what makes the shark attack and the murder of Della so shocking in that film. We wouldn't have cared if it was John Terry. Yeah, it'd be interesting if John Terry played it instead, because we'd all be rooting for Sanchez, wouldn't we? It wouldn't, it wouldn't it really wouldn't work at all. To give him credit, he may have looked a bit more um, sort of realistic than Hedison when we see him sort of on the job in those opening scenes, going all gun crazy with the machine gun. There's always something that sits a bit odd with Hedison and that. Um, but, but at the same time, as you've said, it's a great switch from Live and Let Die when he's just a brilliant straight man to, to Roger Moore's comic foil. I mean, he gives some amazing foam reactions, you know, that wry smile as Bond drifts in on the boat. And of course, we get the classic lighter incompetence when he just carries on sitting and watching the show at Fillet of Soul rather than go looking for what's happened to Bond when he's been drawn through the floor. He's just like, oh, I guess I'll have my steak and watch the show. 
And next up, we have the James Bond Film Club. Last time we had the wonderfully weird world of George Lazenby and Jermaine Greer in Universal Soldier. Uh, have we got something more more normal, more praiseworthy this time, Adam? Sort of no, to be honest. Uh, this week we were looking at The Silencers from 1966 or 1966, as the poster very aptly puts it. Uh, so back at the height of Bond mania in the 60s, a lot of rival studios and producers were trying to cash in and all of them went down the spoof route rather than directly rivaling the Bond films as thrillers. Of course, the most famous example of that is the 1967 Casino Royale. But this film was probably the most successful of all of those spoofs. Uh, it was produced by Irving Allen, who had been Cubby's partner at Warwick Films, but they actually split because he wasn't interested in pursuing the Bond rights. So, you know, more for him. Cubby went off with Harry Saltzman. The rest is history. Uh, and this film stars Dean Martin. That's Amore. As Matt Helm, a playboy photographer and retired secret agent. Uh, he's very much a lover, not a fighter. And in this film, he reluctantly comes back into service to stop Big O, which is a very low budget Spectre knockoff, uh, from sabotaging US missiles and provoking a nuclear, more, a nuclear war. So very much straight out of the Doctor No playbook. There isn't really a plot so much as a series of saucy comedy escapades in this film with Matt uh, accompanied by two beautiful sidekicks. Uh, first, the femme fatale Tina and later the very clumsy and klutzy Gale, played by Stella Stevens, and pretty much providing the prototype for Tiffany Case, red hair, busty bikinis, wild machine gun firing in the finale and all. Um, so there are very obvious things lifted from Bond in this. It has its own colourful version of an opening gun barrel. Uh, there's lots of gadgets, including a gun that fires backwards, which uh, they get a lot of quite good gags out of in the finale. Uh, and there's even a post-credits tease of uh, the next film, with uh, Helm surrounded by a bevy of uh, like a dozen scantily clad ladies, including one called Lovey Craves It. What's more obvious now, though, is that Mike Myers definitely saw this film before making Austin Powers. Uh, Big O's underground lair has some very obviously similar polystyrene brown rocks and like tiny buggies as Dr. Evil's lair went on to have. Uh, Matt Helm's bed is a revolving circle, the same as on Austin's plane, although this one does also lurch across the room and tip its occupants into a massive bubble bath to boot. Um, it's very much a product of its time, the silences. The action's pretty lazy. The villains are quite characterless. Uh, the emphasis is very much more on taking the mick out of Bond's womanizing. Uh, but it's having its cake and eating it because there's just a parade of sex pots throughout the film. Although that having been said, there are some good laughs throughout. Dean Martin really works as a sort of louche, older, can't be bothered with all of this spy. Uh, we know him now, of course, as a Rat Pack singer, but he started out as a comic actor alongside Jerry Lewis uh, and his comedy chops really come to the fore in this. There's a really good gag poking fun at Frank Sinatra when one of his songs comes on in the car. Uh, there's a weird thing throughout the film, though, although we hear sort of randomly warbled snatches of songs that Dean Martin's singing in VO, which presumably are on the soundtrack in full, but we only ever hear like 10 seconds of them. Uh, which is very strange. Um, but all, uh, it has to be said, it's his star power that made this film a success at the time. And the Matt Helm series actually became its own franchise. It had three sequels, Murderer's Row, The Ambushers, and perhaps most famously, The Wrecking Crew, which you'll know if you're a Tarantino fan, as it's the film Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate is watching herself in during Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So kind of the most successful Bond spoof series this film kicked off. Interesting bit of trivia to finish on. Who was Dean Martin's uncle in real life? None other than Leonard Barr, a.k.a. Shady Tree. So put that in your Vegas pipe and smoke it. Are the, are the acorns part of the family as well? 
I, I think so. Yeah, the acorns must be um, in amongst there. Uh, it's quite fascinating. It is a fun watch. It's it's just a bit. There's no plot or action at all. It is just sort of Dean Martin going from lady to lady. And now we head to our next segment. It's Phil's bloopers. And personally, I think Phil is quite harsh on the uh, the movie makers in this section. We all know half of everything is luck; the other half is fate. So it's not really their fault that they're they're making these mistakes, Phil. But uh, anyway, I digress. What uh, what do we got this time, Phil? So this week's Bond bloopers goes back to Goldeneye, of course, Pierce Brosnan's debut as Bond. It was also the film that kind of reimagined the Bond franchise for a new audience. Of course, Martin Campbell came in. And although we kind of often look back fondly, particularly because, you know, this was kind of our Bond growing up, that's not to say that there weren't a few gaffes that still got through in the final edit. So just to start off, We've often talked about um, Admiral Chuck Farrell, of course, who is the victim of Xenia Onotop's killer thighs. If you're quite eagle-eyed when Bond discovers him in the wardrobe on the, the luxury yacht, you'll notice that he actually dies twice. So when he falls out of the wardrobe, his eyes are pointing straight ahead. But by the time he's hit the floor, his eyes are up in his head. That's one of the more obvious bloopers. One of the games I always like to play on any Bond film, of course, or any film in general, is, of course, Spot the Stuntman. So at the very start, when it's the infamous dam jump, Wayne Michaels was the man who actually performed that jump. And if you look very closely, you can actually see a close-up of him as he descends. And when Xenia descends from the helicopter in the film, when Bond and Natalia have been injured in the plane crash, we get a brief shot of the very obvious stunt performer repelling from the helicopter. We can obviously see it's not Famke Janssen. A few other little, you know, minor moments of comedy. So when Bond is fighting the boat boy, when he first descends onto the luxury yacht, we see his hairstyle change about three times. We also see that um, a lot of the stunts that we used in St. Petersburg need to be done with models of, so particularly the statue, we see there's actually wires that are connecting it before it drops onto the larders, so, um, so they are very briefly visible. We also get continuity issues. So one of the more famous ones is when Bond and Natalia first meet in the helicopter and they're about to get blown up by the missiles. Obviously, Bond ingeniously uses the ejector seat, which just so happens to be at head height, you know, fortuitously. For anybody else, it would be, you know, buried away under the cockpit. And when the cockpit releases, we see clearly that it's two white parachutes that fire up. But when it actually lands, they've switched to white and red parachutes, which is, you know, quite an obvious continuity problem. We also note that although Natalia is supposedly tied down to the seat, Bond doesn't have to actually extricate her at all. She just gets out of her own accord. And one of the kind of more entertaining ones for me is also we, we often wax lyrical about the joys of having Desmond Llewellyn's cue. But when he's briefing Bond in his cue layer, we can clearly see him kind of staring off into space. Now, whether he's actually reading his lines off the auto cue, because by this point he's, um, you know, I think he was into his late 70s. We're not sure, but he, we're not really sure where he's looking at, but he's certainly not looking at Bond or, or anything in, in the near distance. So um, there are plenty more kind of gaffes. So, you know, if, if you've got any more that you think I've missed that you kind of always reflect on fondly from the film, then, then do let us know. Obviously, we're always looking forward to hearing from you. But they're some of the kind of memorable ones for me from Goldeneye. Not quite as egregious as some of the other films, I feel like. White parachute to a white and red parachute. Where it's not uh, not particularly bad, I don't think, for, for Goldeneye. Uh, like, I think it's quite funny, Phil, that you play uh, your favourite game is Spot the Stuntman. And yet when there was a stuntman, 
Dave Cronley, Stuntman Dave, you thought it was someone else. I'm not saying that I always spot them correctly. This was, and we put this out on Twitter recently, actually, and there was somebody else that came back to say that they also thought it was Christoph Volt. So clearly I'm not alone in this theory. Okay, fine. Two of you are nutters as opposed to just you. Uh, you didn't You didn't get my favourite blooper from Goldeneye, which is the fact that they, when they originally wrote the script and the part of Trevelyan, he was meant to be an older um, sort of mentor figure to Bond as well as a fellow double O. They were looking at Anthony Hopkins to play him. Uh, and then when they cast the much younger Sean Bean, they kept him as the child of Lienz Cossacks which doesn't work for like Sean Bean's age. He needs to be a lot older for that to work. Hopkins is interesting because I didn't know this. He was actually cast later as Elliot Carver in Tomorrow Never Dies. He kind of became a bit more enthusiastic about being in Bond because Goldeneye had been such a success, but then got there apparently on day one. They were still rewriting the script because of the strike. Everything was absolute chaos and he just left. And Jonathan Price was like a last minute recast. Delicious. So next up is the kill branch of the questions branch in which we respond to your Bond questions or any crazy theories that you might have that usurp anything Phil can think of. Uh, but what uh, what did we have from our listeners this time, Phil? Yeah, so plenty of people have been getting in touch on our socials recently. So just to follow on from our 007 best, Patrick Doherty on Twitter asked, why did we never get to see a Felix Leiter during Brosnan's Bond? Of course, we had plenty of allies. So we had Jack Wade as the CIA rep. We also had Valentin Zakovsky as the KGB element. But do you think you'd have wanted to have seen Felix Leiter come back for Brosnan? Not really, because I think Jack Wade kind of does that role, doesn't he? Like he's, you know, he's reinvented as a more overtly comedy relief version of a Felix Leiter. So I think that works for the Brosnan era more than get a Felix back, but sort of have to play him semi-seriously like all the others, just invent a funnier CIA foil instead. I didn't hear anyone mention a Devonshire, I mentioned Devonshire, did you? I mean, they could have just called him Felix Leiter. I don't think it would have made much difference, really, would it? I mean, we had Norman Burton as Adam's favourite Leiter, so I'm sure Jack Wade could have just been changed into Felix. Yeah, that's a fair point, yeah. Dude, I do love his kind of final moment in Tomorrow Never Dies of going, he didn't say goodbye! And that, that's the end of Jack Wade. Is he the only character in the Bond universe who calls James Bond Jimbo? Yo, Jimbo! I think he might be. I feel like J.W. Pepper should have called him Jimbo if he didn't. Instead of, that secret agent from England! Some kind of doomsday machine! He does, Jack Wade does have a classic Felix moment, doesn't he? Of turning up way too late with all of the reinforcements. They're all just sat in the grass at the end of Goldeneye waiting for things to blow over. He is the honorary Felix Leiter, actually, with the Brosnan era. Uh, so, yeah, so we, just while we speak about, obviously, the uh, the actors during Brosnan's career, we, it was a lot of the Bond community were saddened to hear of the, the death of uh, Robbie Coltrane, the British actor who played Valentin Zukovsky in the Brosnan era during GoldenEye and The World Is Not Enough. Of course, Coltrane was a, a very, very gifted screen actor, not just on the big screen, but also on the small screen. What would you guys... Um, you know, say about him as an actor, you know, certainly from my point of view, he was one of those larger than life characters as Zukovsky. And I think he, you know, he brought real value to the role um, when he was working alongside Brosnan. Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd echo that, Phil. I think, I mean, such a small part really in the Bond franchise, but it says a lot that when people are writing about his death, his obituary mentions the Bond connection. So he did so much really in that tiny role. He really made an impression, certainly on the, the Bond community. 
Yeah, and when he returned for the world is not enough, you're really happy to see him. And it feels like an old friend and a, a big sort of bundle of warmth is coming back in, even though they only shared that one scene in Goldeneye. But in that one scene, you get all the backstory, all the tension between those characters. I've just looked back on when we did our top 007 allies and we put Zukovsky fourth. Uh, there was only Tiger Tanaka, Columbo and Karim Bay above him, which I think is probably about right still. Um but yeah, Robbie Coltrane, a, a great actor, both comic and serious, you know, started out in comedy with the comic strip and everything, which is why he worked so well in those Brosnan films, because he is dramatic as a presence, but he brings that lightness of touch as well. So yeah, a great British actor. So just to, to move on to our next question. So Dom got in touch with us on Facebook to ask, what is the Bond film that we would recommend that children are able to watch that they could get started with um, in the franchise? I, I know personally it's probably not Licence to Kill. You know, pro- probably don't want to start with that. Well, maybe maybe wait a couple of years before they, they you know, get the head explosion. What about you guys? Would you pick another one that you'd kind of introduce to, you know, if it was like your nephew or your niece or, or you know, somebody, that you, a child that you wanted to get introduced to the franchise? I think probably The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, right? Because all the kids just love Jaws. I remember growing up, you know, he was a big favourite character because he's larger than life, has the metal teeth. He's kind of scary, but he's kind of funny as well. And uh, all the sex stuff in Bond goes over your head when you're a kid. And I think the nature of the action in those films is so big and over the top and cartoony that they're probably the best ones to intro a kid to. Yeah, I think those are good good picks. I think in terms of if we think about Bond, we don't want him to be too murderous, do we? And for a kid's film. So in terms of the sheer numbers, maybe Men with a Golden Gun, where he just kills Scaramanga might be. And it's a bit cartoony, isn't it, with the the funhouse? But yeah, certainly not the ones where people are getting shredded. And he had a lot of guts. Yeah, I think anything with Roger Moore, really, it has to be said, because he is the most welcoming and ingratiating of all the Bonds. Like, he doesn't sort of keep you at a distance or have any kind of harder edge. He sort of warmly hugs you into the Bond film if you start out with Rog. So I'd probably say those films. Hey, thanks, guys. So that was our Q Branch segment for this week. So as ever, please do keep getting in touch with us on our socials and our email address, which is rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! Okay, so that brings us to the final segment of today's episode, and it is back again to Phil. You have the quiz today. Um, I was just saying before we started the recording of this episode, uh, there's a few Bond films that actually I haven't watched for quite a while. So, I mean, I'm I'm bad at these quizzes when I have watched the films, so (laughs) I'm I'm dreading this, but what do we got, Phil? This week's quiz is called the James Bond Monster Mashup. So what I'm going to do is there's four questions each. Adam, you're going to start us off. I'm going to give you the name of an actor who has appeared in at least one James Bond film. They have also appeared in at least one horror film during their career. So you will get one point for the Bond film, but you will also get a bonus point if you can give me the name of any horror film they have appeared in. So, Adam, you're to kick us off. Charles Gray. Okay, so yeah, Charles Gray, You Only Live Twice, and Diamonds Are Forever, Henderson and Blofeld. Um, I'm going to guess uh, you're referring to the Rocky Horror Picture Show in terms of the horror film he's in, where he's the narrator. Just a jump to the left! I should have said at the start, I will accept horror comedies as well, so he does appear in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. He also appeared in a Hammer horror film, um, The Devil Rides Out, so he is also in that one as well. So Martin, your first question is Donald Pleasance. Well, I can do the Bond film here. You only live twice. 
No, I mean, my film knowledge is just not good enough. I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't have an answer. I'm sure Adam will know. I feel like this quiz might be a bit of a stroll in the park here. Um, well, you could presumably have any number of the Halloween films. He's in the first one. I think he comes back for quite a few. So Halloween is probably the most popular reference for Donald Pleasance, of course. So yes, there's only one point, Martin, for that one. So Adam takes an early lead. But it's getting a bit trickier now. So Adam, Eunice Gason. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously Sylvia Trench, as we've said in uh, Doctor No from Russia with Love. I don't have a clue of any other film she was in. Presumably, there's a Hammer film. Let's guess um, that she's in The Curse of Frankenstein. So I'm just checking my list. I'm just checking my list because it's it's The Revenge of Frankenstein. You are correct. Was that your? No, I said The Curse of Frankenstein, and I'm going to imagine that's a very different film. <laughs> I'll give you one point. So, Martin, your second one is Christopher Lee. Well, I think I might I might be okay for this one. So, <laughs> the man with the golden gun, of course. Yeah. And then, well, was it something Nasferatu? Is he in there? Or is that the name of the... I don't know. Go really obvious and just say who he played. Uh, Dracula? Yes! <laughs> yes. <laughs> there you go. With a lot of so self. In- I got the two points. No, that's good. So we are now level pegging, but it's going to get a lot harder. So, Adam, for number three, Desmond Llewellyn. What list all of the Bond films? (laughs) Yeah, so Desmond Llewellyn, Q. So Q in, let's say, Thunderball. I nearly said Live and Let Die, which is the only one he's not in. Q in Thunderball and many others. Um, Okay, well, presumably he's in um, some hammer as well. Uh, so let's just go. Let's go with like a compendium one, like um, Doctor Terrible's House of Horrors. Uh, I knowledge he's not, but he does appear in the Curse of the Werewolf, which was another Hammer House of Horror film. Um, so Martin, your chance to at least draw level again. So your number three is Martine Beswick. Now, this one, now I should know these, really, because she was one of our guests, wasn't she, in the previous episode? So that, well, From Russia With Love is the Bond connection. I've just Um, had a look and there's no way you're getting this. (laughs) Uh, No, I'm going to have to pass, Phil. I mean, I probably did in my research for our interview with Martine, I probably did look at some of the titles, but uh, I can't think of one. So it was so her most probably her most prominent horror movie role was playing Edwina Hyde in it's actually Sister Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But you are still level on points and it's getting down to the battle. The the greatest battle of them all, really. It's it's the battle of the ends. So Adam, question number four is Jeffrey Keane is your actor. So Jeffrey Keane plays a uh, Frederick Gray in Amongst yes, does, sorry. The Spy Who Loved Me. I feel like I've seen him in a horror film. Um, I'm going to go back to The Curse of Frankenstein. His most famous role was in The Taste the Blood of Dracula. So again, it was... I think, I think let's say I didn't get that. <laughs> All right, okay. So Martin, you're still in this, surprisingly, on the grounds that nobody knows horror films. Right, so, you're, so your last question is Bernard Lee. Well, let's uh, let's do the Bond one first, shall we, uh, Doctor No? Yeah. Bernard Lee, what was he in? I mean, I've, I've got a problem here because I, I don't even know the names of horror films. <laughs> so I can't even make an educated guess. Um, popular horror characters. 
Yeah, but let's go to the tiebreaker immediately, Phil. I, I don't have an answer. What was he? What was he famous for in horror? So he also appeared in his most famous role was actually in a, in Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. So he was in the Frankenstein. I tell you series. what, could be if any of you have seen any of the films that Phil has just referenced, please write in because I haven't. I didn't say it was going to be easy. I said it was a tricky one this week, and you all. You still scored points. It's not like you just had to guess the horror films. That would have been too niche. Okay, what's the tiebreaker then, Phil? The highest grossing Bond film to date is Skyfall, which took in just over a billion dollars at the box office. In 2012, with the year of its release, the same highest grossing horror film was The Woman in Black. So for its overall 2012 gross amount to the nearest, let's say, Round it up. So in dollars, how many, how much money did the woman in black make? What did you say, Phil? A billion for Skyfall. A billion yeah. US dollars. Yeah, just over a billion. Okay, yep, so well, uh, yeah, complete guess. Uh, Skyfall was a billion. So let's say this one was uh, 400 million. I I was going to say 500 million, but I'll go... This did do really well, but I don't know if it only did well in the UK. So let, let's go slightly higher. I'll say 600 million to give it a bit of space. So you might be surprised in terms of its overall amount. So it was actually only 54, 000, uh, $54 million. So Martin, you are this week's winner. So it wasn't actually that high. Okay, I, thanks I think a lot. <laughs> More exciting than car engine sizes, debatably. Uh, so uh, thanks everyone for uh, for joining us for today's episode. Do check us out on social media, Twitter, of course, on the, our handle More Cubby. If you want to send us any questions, theories, or, or any general comments, and uh, we'll see you next time for our the final episode actually of this series, episode number ten. We'll be back soon. So thanks for listening. I was Martin. I was Adam. I was Phil. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. So I think, you know, he's, he's probably, prior to Jeffrey Wright, he's probably the most memorable Bond actor to, to play the role. Um, I'm sorry. Right, I just need to nip downstairs because I've got a delivery. So if you guys, just, I'll just, just edit my bit out if that's okay. It's his octopusy robe, I think. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's, that's absolutely turned up.